Jesus, we are so, so humble before you. Lord, we know, God, that you are, are great and awesome and powerful. And yet, Lord God, you, you didn't desire for us to build you big cathedrals and big towering idols or statues or anything like that. Lord, you, you who claim that your temple, the place where you dwell, cannot be made with human hands and it's actually our bodies. And Lord, that type of temple is so much more glorious than anything a human being could make or craft with some sort of idol, Lord God. You are, you're so much greater. And Lord, we thank you for the truth, Lord, that you dwell inside us. And Lord, we ask now, as, as we look in your word, that that spirit that dwells inside us, Lord, would lead us into all truth and would teach us what we need to know. Lord God, I'm one man who, who may speak a certain sermon and have certain things to say, but Lord, your spirit can speak individually to each one of us the exact thing you want us to hear. And so we specifically ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Maybe for someone, it's, it's a, a word of conviction. Maybe for someone else, it's a word of encouragement. But Lord, we ask that you would speak to each one of us. And Lord, our part in that is, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you and, and ask you. Lord, we're, we're, not try, we're not here to try to figure out your word, to try to decipher some message. Lord, we are here to listen and to open our ears to you and, and let our hearts be soft before you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, knowing that when we ask it in your name, you hear us and you will meet us here, we believe. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 11 and going through about verse 19 today. And the, the message that we're talking about today is the threefold peace that is described in Ephesians chapter 2. So we've seen these threefold lessons that Ephesians just keeps building on top of, each, uh, of itself. Three this, three that, a threefold prayer, three, three this, you know, three different nuggets of truth, and they all seem to go together. And as we come to this one, it's the threefold peace of God, but I, I gave it a subtitle uh, kind of to expand the idea of what this is about. And my subtitle is How to Murder a Disagreement. And I, I like that subtitle because it's edgy, and I like being edgy sometimes, but I really like it because it, it, it actually accurately describes what we're supposed to do when there is conflict between us as believers and us in the world. Conflict. And what we're going to see is we're going to see that the only thing that can cure a conflict or a disagreement is death. Is death. But we're, we're going to expand upon that. So if that sounds confusing right now, good. I hope you're intrigued. But we're going to look at this threefold peace, all right? We're going, to look that, we're going to learn that he, number one, is our peace. So locationally, that's where we find peace. Number two, we're going to learn that he makes and creates peace relationally. And number three, that he preaches peace or he spreads peace. Can you kind of think evangelistically with that third part? So I'm going to start a little bit with a little bit history lesson so we understand what's being written before us by Paul. You had what was called first-generation Christians. 
And these first generation Christians were the ones that, that got saved when Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, and when Peter preached to them, 3,000 got saved. That group that went out and kind of spread off in there around Israel and a little bit around the world, but mainly it was right there in Israel. And they were almost exclusively Jewish, these first generation Christians. They were centered in Jerusalem. They kept all, almost all of the Jewish traditions. They were very much still Jewish. In fact, if you walked into a synagogue, you would find Jews and what we'd call the first generation Christians. They didn't separate. They didn't say, okay, now we're starting a whole new religion right, right here. They didn't do that. They were just continuing in their Judaism kind of a, a completed form or a, an enlightened form of Judaism is, is how it would have been perceived. They still went to the synagogue and and uh, they still felt that Jewish nationalistic pride, and, and they still felt very clearly that they were part of Judaism. That was this first generation Christians. But then we get to the second generation Christians, and that was still some Jews, but it was mostly Gentiles. See, as the church began to spread around the world and people started saying, Jesus is the Messiah, many, many, many Greeks and Romans and pagans received this good news about Jesus as the Savior for all mankind, and they, they became Christians. And that was allowed. And, and we see the story in the book of Acts of how the church first learned that the Gentiles could be saved through Peter. And Peter had the dream, and he went, and Cornelius got saved, and you had all these Gentiles that then at that point started getting saved. And you see in, this, in the, all the larger cities around the Mediterranean region, and it, um, they, would, they would have synagogues, and, and they had all these different re, uh, religions. The, the paganism, all the Gentiles were kind of pagan, and uh, they, there would be some, though, that thought that Judaism was probably the right way to go, that there was one God and not all these different Greek gods and all these different Roman gods. And, and so there was Gentiles that would actually go to the Jewish synagogue and say, this is, I believe in your God. And they would, they would hang out with them there. And so the Jews would call them God-fearers, God-fearing Gentiles. And so those were a lot of the first, peoples, the first people that got saved. They, would, they heard that there was a Messiah for all the people and that they didn't have to become Jews to believe and accept this Messiah and be saved by him. And so, they, many of them, believed. And they didn't have any connection with that Jewish tradition. And as they learned about these Jewish traditions like Passover and the different feasts and all the other Jewish t- traditions... They saw them as pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus, these god these Gentiles. And so they didn't feel any need to go and become Jews to become Christians. They could just become Christians and believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these things. Whereas the, the Jews still held on to this um, connection with the traditions. So the sacrifices that the Jews made, some of them still made them, even though Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and even though they believed in that. And, and the circumcision, and the Sabbaths, and all the other things that were a part of the Jewish religion. So the church did accept these second-generation Christians as full members of the church, and declared that they didn't need to keep any of uh, the traditions to be a true believer in Jesus Christ, and they received the Holy Spirit and salvation. Paul had already fought for this, but there were many in the original Jewish 
Pharisees, remember those, those guys that were all about the law, that they did come to believe and now were now Christians, but they had a very hard time letting go of the traditions. And sometimes it's hard to let go of those things that we feel that we've grown up with as being so important. Maybe even impossible to let those things go. We've grown up in America. And in America, we are taught that, that freedom to do anything you want to do is of, of ultimate importance. That that's the American way. You know, the American dream is to be happy. Right? And, and, and we can have a very hard time of letting that go. Maybe God wants you to go through suffering. Is that okay with you? Well, it's, I'm, live, I'm an American. That's not okay with me. I'm here. I, I'm supposed to just be happy all the time because I'm an American. And, and we have a hard time sometimes aligning our hearts with what we've grown up with with the Word of God. And that's the struggle that these Pharisees... And I'm not coming down hard on these Pharisees. I, I get it. I mean, they, they were committed to the law because they felt like keeping the law was their way to honor God. And it's very hard to, to change that. And so I don't want to come down too hard on them and say, oh, you know, they were just, you know, crickety old men. You know, no, they, they had a heart for God. They did. But they, they had a hard time kind of letting that go. They, could, they had a hard time believing that the law was relegated virtually useless by the new covenant. And they had to struggle to understand the extent that, that grace had been given to all the believers. They, they had a hard time realizing all that efforts to keep the law that you put in, now it's accomplished by faith and grace. And I know it, it, was, it was a lot of efforts every morning to wake up and keep those commandments. But now there's a new way. And that new way, it was, it was almost offensive to them. But the Lord, that's how the Lord grew his church. So what happened is Paul would go around and he would establish all these churches in Asia and Macedonia. And he would say, grace, you, got, you could be saved by grace. All you Gentiles, just come believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And the Gentiles were like, all right, let's do it. And he would baptize them and they'd be ready to go. And then Paul would depart and go to another city and do the same thing there. And then after him, in the place he was just at, the Jews would come in. Some of these people called Judaizers. And they would come in and say, oh, it's great that all you Gentiles got saved. Now let me finish what Paul started. And they would encourage all these Gentiles to get circumcised and to keep the law and to start keeping all these old commands. And they would say, you can't really be saved if you don't keep all these commandments. But these Judaizers were wrong. And Paul would write letters back to those churches like Galatians and Colossians and Philippians in this letter of Ephesians explaining and clarifying that no, you are free. And those Judaizers are wrong. You are free from the law. They placed, these Judaizers placed too much emphasis on the outward acts and, and as they thought that a person was made right before God by what they did and they didn't fully understand the person and work of Jesus on the cross. They thought these Gentiles were, were just going to live licentious lives of sin if they were not kept under the guard of the law. So they thought, we have to honor God, and if these Gentiles are going to come in, 
they've, they've been pagans their whole lives. Their lives were marked by pornography and, and probably drugs and whatever else under the sun they wanted to do. Unfaithfulness and, and wickedness. And we can't just tell them that Jesus just forgives them. Good Lord, no. We have to tell them, yes, he'll forgive you, but now you need to, to learn all these laws and rules and regulations and they'll, they'll keep you safe. Because if you go commit adultery, that's going to dishonor God. Especially if I'm accepting you into this club that I'm a part of. My religion. And so, they wanted to, keep, they wanted to guard them. Again, I get what the Judaizers are doing. I understand it. But in reality, they're having a hard time trusting grace. They're having a hard time believing that God is able to create a new creation out of a pagan. Now, we're 2,000 years later. We see this happen all the time. Many of you guys and me, we were pagans. We, we did not honor God. We knew nothing about God before Jesus saved us. And now we are living to honor God. And if you ask us how that happened, we don't quite know. Except that God changed me. God changed my heart, which is what the new covenant does. It changes us. But these guys back then, they were so... They believed in the law. And they believed in their ability to keep the law. And that's, that's where it went wrong. So they thought they would live, a, I said this word, licentious. A licentious life. So what they were afraid of, these Judaizers, is that the believers would think that they had a license to sin. That's what the word licentious means. That I have, I, I've been saved, so I can just do whatever I want. And if I want to go partake in this thing or do that thing, I can do that and just ask for God for forgiveness later. And that doesn't work, though, as you and I know, because the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us. And he says, you have to repent. You have dishonored me. Come back to me. And that Holy Spirit within us creates a heart that longs after the things of God. So, when we're born again by the Spirit of God, we're given this new heart, and then the new desires naturally follow. See, these, these pagan believers, they wouldn't live a, a life of a license to sin because they'd been freed from not only the penalty of sin, they were saved, but they were freed from the power of sin in their life, that dominating power of sin. They were actually freed. So now that we understand this conflict and what was going on in these days, let's read from verse 11 and learn how this threefold peace changes everything in our lives. Let's look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the same time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers from the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. See, outside of Israel, the world was extremely polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and everyone talked about the gods and idols and sacrifice, and it was very common to hear talk of idols as you walked along the streets in the world back then. 
But it was almost, but it, it was this idea that they needed to just talk about the gods and go to their temples just to keep the gods off their back. It wasn't ever a true heart of devotion to their gods because they had too many gods to be devoted to just one. So it was just like, we don't want to make the gods angry, plural. And so we go to the temple and we sacrifice and do incense and they made up all these rituals. But there was no heartfelt, sincere love or devotion to an authority. It was all just an outward show or almost even like a civic duty, like paying your taxes and a lot like just following along with the crowd. This is what everyone does. This is what we think we should do. So this is what we're going to do. But being far from God was just the normal way of their life. They were far. Even their own gods they were far from. They didn't have any real way to draw near to God. The gods were always way up there in outer space somewhere and looking down upon us with their lightning bolts in their hands. And even, you know, the Jews, when they looked at the pagans, they, they thought, man, what a worthless worship. What a, what a pagan religion. That's why they called them pagans. And they thought, you guys are so far from God. Because the Jews, they worshipped one God, and he was the true God. And so they were actually close to the Lord. And that's what Paul's referencing here. And because they didn't have a personal God, and a single, all-powerful God who had revealed himself to them and desired a personal relationship and communication with them, these pagans just wandered around doing whatever they wanted. The Jews, however, were passionate about God. They were passionate about their relationship with him, and they were passionate about his rules. They didn't want to be far from him. They wanted to be close to him, which was admirable. And especially the rule of circumcision. That was a big one to them. It was the rule that if they kept it, it really made you stand apart as someone who cared about God and his rules. It really made you look the part. It really made you look like you gave it up for the Lord, like you deserve something. But here, Paul teaches that these Gentiles... They were just in the, in the flesh, he said. You were Gentiles in the flesh, which means they were not truly spiritual. They had no spiritual life inside them. He says, you were once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision. But he also says that the Jews were in the flesh too. That they were not truly spiritual as well. Because he calls them the circumcision made in the flesh. By hands. It's a really neat thing that Paul does there. He puts them both under the same boat. So even though the Jews were nearer to God than the Gentiles were, than the pagans were, they were still in the flesh. And that's the part that they needed to say it salvation from. That's the part that everyone needed to be saved from, was the flesh. He, he desired to give true spirituality to everyone. And so he says that. In verse 12, he says... He gives the state of these unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. He gives us the state. I don't think he's differentiating necessarily the Jews from the Gentiles. He's giving the state of all unbelievers. And look what he says here. He says that at, at that time you were without Christ. Meaning you had no understanding of the Messiah. God's promised deliverer. God's saving servant. 
The Jews knew that there would be a Messiah that came, but their expectation was that he would come and bring deliverance from Rome. And, and Paul says here, you guys were without Christ. You had no understanding of what the true role of the Messiah was, which was to be murdered on the cross for sin. To, to bear the wrath of God that was appointed to, to us. That was the, the first role of the Messiah. And they could have known that from many passages in the Old Testament, but that's not where their heart was. So the Jews, unbelieving Jews, and the unbelieving pagans, both without Christ. And then it says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That means that they were not really a part of God's kingdom. Israel means governed by God. That's the definition of the word Israel, governed by God. And so they were not under God's authority. Both the Gentiles had no authority, basically, except Rome and the Jews as well. They weren't truly governed by God in their hearts. And then it says, strangers from the covenants of promise. See, they had no rest from their works. God had made promises and covenants of promise that if you believe them, you would receive them, and they were not to be worked for. But these Jews and the Gentiles, they were just working. The Gentiles would go to their temples and they'd offer their sacrifices. The Jews would go to their temple and they'd offer their sacrifices. And none of them were a part of the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, none of them were really part of God's kingdom at this point. And then it says they had no hope, which means they had no hope. No guarantee that their religion or life was going anywhere. What a sad state to be in. And we look at the world and, and that's where they're at. All these descriptions. No understanding of God's provision for them, their Messiah. No, they're not part of God's kingdom. They're not governed by him. They're, they're no rest from their works. They're just laboring and laboring and laboring. And for what? They have no hope, no promise, no guarantee that anything they're doing is going to matter. What if you graduate number one from Harvard and have all the best degrees? What is that going to get you when you die? They have no guarantees. This whole world. And the fifth thing is, and without God in the world, which means they're alone. They're alone. Hell is defined by eternal separation from God, and so they're actually experiencing a little bit of hell. This separation from God. They're experiencing hell. That's the state. But... Now, he says, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, far away, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. See, that personal peace is found in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. World peace is, is the bumper sticker you see out there. And, and there's big signs out there. People are all looking for world peace. And they have these plans and they're trying to change the world to bring world peace. But the intimate, personal peace is God being brought close to us. But there's not a war between us and Him. There's peace between us and God. And it says here that that comes by the blood of Jesus. He is not... Okay, God is not okay with you being far away. 
He's not okay with it. He's not okay with you drifting. He's not. He is passionate. He demands closeness, intimacy, which is scary to some of you. Some of you, that is a thought worse than standing on the edge of a cliff about to fall. Having someone that demands to know your heart and demands all of your attention. That is scary because you have been hurt by people who were close to you, who you allowed into your heart, who you allowed into your life. And because of those wounds, your heart is closed up to Jesus. But Jesus is really good at loving you past that. And it says here, he does it by, how does he bring you near? By his blood. And it's neat that you don't have to bring yourself near. He brings you near. You just open your heart to him and he brings you near. It's like he grabs... You ever have someone that gives you one of those weird, awkward hugs where they just grab you and pull you into them? And, and you're like, whoa, that's a hug right there. And you're, you, know, you can hardly breathe because they're squeezing you. That's what I picture Jesus like. He is going to bring you near and he does it by your blood. He, he's going to... Let, he's going to heal your heart by his blood. You know, his blood proves that he's not going to hurt you like those people have hurt you. He cares for you more than his own comfort. He'd rather pour out his blood than for you to be left without resources, you to be left on your own. He, he cares more about you than his position as seated at the right hand of God where he was so comfortable, yet he came down and was humbled, mocked, his own body. He cares more about you than his own body. And he's proved it by shedding his blood for us. So no matter, so we have no idea how lucky or blessed we are to have this intimate relationship. You see, Adam had it, and he lost it, and he thought pretty much he was gone forever. When Adam sinned in the garden, and, you know, he realized that that intimacy he had with the Lord Now we felt like he had to be clothed and covered and his sin was the problem between him and his relationship with God. And man, it was a huge bummer. And the Jews had had put tremendous amount of effort and work into having even a limited closeness with God. Remember that for the Jewish nation, before Jesus came, they could only enter God's presence once a year. And that was only one guy as a representative on behalf of all the people. And we get to enter God's presence anytime we want through Jesus Christ. How glorious, how lucky, how blessed are we as these people. It's amazing. And it says, for he himself is our peace. There used to be that veil between God and the people in the temple. But when Jesus died, that veil was torn by God, from top to bottom, signifying that the way into God's presence was now open to everyone through Jesus. The war, the separation was now over, and peace had come between God and man. Amazing. And between man and man. See, our te- our, the context here is, is the Jews, the struggle between those first generation Christians and the second generation Christians and how they were really, 
there was some, some problems in their relationship. But yet, when Jesus comes, he fixes it all. He brings peace between man and man. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, I'll read you two verses here. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, yet all are one in Christ Jesus. And again, in Colossians 3.11, there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. And see, in the early days of the church, what really freaked out the world that was observing. See, the church met in secret and they, they, they were freaked out about that and they thought, what, you can't be doing anything good if you're in secret. They thought they were cannibals and they thought all these weird things about the church. But that wasn't the real thing that, that caused the world to freak out about Christians and even begin this time of a couple hundred years of persecution. What really freaked out the world was that in that room, when the Christians gathered together, there was no divisions. There was no classes. The rich were the same as the poor, and the men were the same as the women, and the Jews were the same as the Gentiles, and that went against the natural order of life, and you can't do that in the world. They, they, they thought, you are tearing at the fabric of society. The natural order of, of our world is that there's slaves and free people, and the free people are better than the slaves, and that never changes. But Christianity changes that. Christianity is the reason why slavery ended. Christianity is the reason why women were treated equal as men. Christianity brings peace. And that is something this world still doesn't understand. Peace. So we all stand in peace. There's some very real disagreements and problems, problems between people. So how do we deal with those and how do we take care of those wars? How do we do that? Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting to death the enmity. So how does he bring peace to all the divisions in the church and in the relationships with all of us? It says here he makes, he makes them one. He makes them one. He unites them. Anna says that he breaks down the middle wall of separation. Well, how does he do those two things? He explains it to us. It says here that he abolishes or destroys that thing that separated people. And it's all bound up in these two words, the law. The law. The law says you did something wrong. You need to pay for that. You're not measuring up over here. You messed up over there. And so I have conflict with you because of those things. If you really get down to it, that's why much, if not all, of the conflict between us as believers happens. And in each one of these things, God says, 
It's the cause of the strife between people. They say, you've wronged me. You broke the law. You stole or lied or cheated. Somehow that, that breaks the law and, and you owe me and you've you got to fix this. You didn't pay me, so you owe me. You're not, just not good enough or you're just unfaithful. But Jesus fixes this in his, in his body, which is the church, by abolishing the law and its condemning voice when he dies on the cross. What's left after the law is gone is a relationship and it's a new creation. A Christian. It's no longer a Jew trying to keep the law and doing an okay job at it, but still failing. And it's not a Gentile who doesn't try to keep the law at all. And so they had all this conflict because of the law. When Jesus dies, he takes away the law, and you have a person and a person who have a relationship with God, and all those relationships are the same. They're based on faith. And so any amount of superiority or any thought that I'm better than you or you've wronged me is all just bound up in this relationship with Jesus. And they're united as one body. We can forgive, no matter what sin has been committed. When our hearts are filled with God's Holy Spirit, the law plays no part in our relationships. And he says, thus it makes peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So this, this unity, this peace that he makes, he actually creates it. He creates it when, when the relationship is centered on God. When the relationship is centered on God, he just creates it. And you might look at, at another believer and say, I could never be friends with them. I could never have peace with them. I could never be at peace with them in that denomination or the people who think that way. And yet when we get our heart on God, it says he not only is our peace, but he will create peace in that relationship. Created out of nothing, like he created the world out of nothing. And how does that happen? Well, it's, it's like that triangle illustration that you've seen. Maybe a lot of times it's between the husband and the wife, but you have your husband and your wife and God. And if you want to get closer with your husband and your wife or you, gotta, you just go towards God and you'll find that you're getting closer and closer and closer. And it's the same thing in our, in our church relationships and every relationship. If we draw close to the Lord, if we keep our eyes on the cross, the enmity is put to death between us. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty amazing. You, you keep your eyes, you watch Jesus be nailed to the cross and the disagreement is murdered with him on the cross. Whatever you had between yourself and this other believer, it goes away. And sometimes we, we get in some real pickles where someone who's a believer hurts us incredibly. Is there an answer for that? And I say, yes, the answer is the cross. And you're like, wow, that's too simplistic. I mean, I, I learn in my psychology classes that I have to go back to my childhood and find out why 
I am the way I am or why I feel the way I feel. And Jesus is like, yeah, you, it might have some value, but really, it's not going to work. The cross works. My cross works. Keep your eyes on the cross and it will create peace. Look at verse 17 now. It says, And he came and he preached peace. Jesus preaches peace to you who are far off and those who are near. For through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So now we see Jesus on a mission to spread this peace. He, he says he came and he preached this peace. He's spreading it. And he has this amazing ability to bring people together and bring peace into people's lives. And he just wants to spread it around. Of course, what is this amazing ability? It's just him. He brings our peace. He creates the peace. And it says through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Did you notice right there that the Trinity is just perfectly pictured? One of the best verses in the entire Bible that illustrates for us the doctrine of the Trinity. You have man approaching the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. Each one having their own role in our life. Each one having their own submission to each other. It's amazing what, what you can see about the Trinity here in this verse. And why is the Trinity a perfect picture of peace? Because God is peace. Every part of Him. Jesus brings our peace. The Spirit, we enter into His presence by the Spirit. And the Father, man, He's just the source of peace. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 you guys know this verse. Many of you says, don't worry about anything, but instead pray and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. When you taste this peace, it's so good. It's like growing up in the worst dictatorship and poverty-stricken, violence-filled nation, and then moving to a new country where everything is perfect. It's just like a, a fresh of breath there. And he says here, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens now with the saints and members of the household of God. So that's exactly how we're at, where we're at right now. We're in a whole new country, even though we live in the same state. So, to spread this peace, it's like inviting people to join your family. That's what it is for us. How do, we, how do we be like Jesus? Jesus came and he spread this peace. How do we do that? We invite someone to join our family. Can you imagine a homeless, poor, orphan, little, little orphan kid being invited to join a wonderful family and rejecting it? No. Who would? You know, a, a person who knows their own humbleness, they know their own 
futility. They know how poor they are and alone they are and all those things that we read about of that description. They know they're, they're away from God. They're not governed by God. How do you think it would go over if you just invited them to be a part of a wonderful family? I think that's a great way to view evangelism. I think if we take this attitude into the world and we talk to people about the Lord as if we're inviting them to become part of his family, I think that we're going to find people are very open to being a a part of a new family, to being a part of a, a family who wants to be, wants to love them, wants to be a part of the special things in their life, wants to spend time with them, have family events and celebrate with them. Families that say, I love you. Whatever they need, we'll take care of you. You can depend upon us because we're family. I think that's a good offer that we have for this world. It's all through Jesus. You know, it's, it's amazing because he hasn't simply made peace between God and man and Jews and Gentiles and everyone, but he actually is our peace. And I remember back when Jesus was praying in, in John 17, and he, and he prayed and he said that they all may be one, that it wasn't just a prayer or a hope or a wish, or Jesus was, just didn't have some idea that maybe someday that would be the reality, but he actually accomplished what he was praying for. He answered his own prayer when he died on the cross to accomplish making us one. Because for there to be some peace, for there to be peace, someone has got to die. It's either you or your enemy or Jesus, but in order for there to be peace, someone has to die. And if it's Jesus then your place is to join him on that cross and die with him. Whatever your thinking was, if you were thinking, this isn't my fault, I'm not the wrong one, I deserve this, and that's why we have conflict. For the sake of peace, each one of us can make a choice to climb up on the cross and let it die. Then what happens? Do we just perpetually live in this state of getting walked on, of never standing up for ourselves? No, the Bible says when you choose to die, that Jesus brings life into you and peace into the situation. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we get to trust the Lord Jesus. We get the honor of placing the consequences of our own of our self-sacrificing choices in his scarred hands and watching what magical and wonderful things will come from it. We may not even see it until heaven. You may not even get to see. But I, I know that we will never be disappointed from making a choice to get up on the cross and die with him. We will experience his life. And in fact, here, or from Philippians 4, 6, where we just read, 
he says his peace actually passes understanding. So we won't even be able to understand how amazing it is, how blessed we will be. So, our encouragement today at church on Sunday is to climb up on the cross and die with our Lord Jesus as a living sacrifice. And watch and see the peace that flows into your life and the lives of those around you. Watch how conflicts melt away. Watch how Jesus himself is just seen in your life. Let's all close our eyes and pray. Jesus, you are the source of our life. You bring us peace. Lord, you yourself are our peace. We can find it in no other place. No philosophy brings us peace. No amount of work or searching out can find world peace or internal peace. Lord, it's only in you. And God, I thank you, Lord God, that that when we trust in you, you create peace in our lives. Out of nothing, where there was impos- it was impossible for there to peace, be peace before, Lord Jesus, you just create it. You, with your wonderful power, create it. And Lord God, I pray that you would enable us and strengthen us and give us conviction to offer this peace to those around us. Lord, that we would invite them to become fellow heirs and citizens of the household of God with us. Because Jesus, that offer stands. And we are the bearers of that truth in this world. Lord, give us hearts and boldness, Lord Jesus, to invite people to have peace. Let us have eyes to see those who are heavy laden, those who have burdens, those who are working hard. Lord Jesus, help us to see how you see people. Help us to know when they don't understand the Messiah. Help us to know when they don't. Jesus, know that you have made provision for them. And give us clarity in explaining that to them. Lord, help us to know when people are not governed by God. Even if they think they're a part of God's kingdom, like the the Jews thought that they were part of the true Israel, but they were not. Help us to know so that we can invite them to be part of the true kingdom that's in your Son. And Lord God, help us to see those around us who have no hope and who are alone. Give us hearts that are ravished with sorrow when we see someone who is alone. Someone who has no guarantee that their life is going anywhere. Let our hearts break for them and let our actions be full of love and care and concern for them. And if you have 
come this whole time in your, in your life and you look at yourself and you think, I, I really don't understand why Jesus died on the cross. And I don't think I'm part of his kingdom. And I'm still working. I have no rest from my works. And you would like today to be the day that you enter into God's family. Then I invite you to pray with me. And believe in what Jesus has done for you. Just pray with me and say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you made provision for me. And Jesus, I believe that you love me. And you make a a clear offer for me to enter your kingdom by believing. Not by anything that I need to do, but Lord, I do turn away from my life. I repent of sin and I desire to walk with you every day. It's in Jesus' name all of us pray. Amen.